Well, hi, everybody. So good to see you. Thank you so much for being here. If you're at Plymouth, thank you so much. But we also have Northridge Brighton and Northridge Celine. Just so thankful for all that's going on in your communities. And I'm just really, really excited about this weekend. We're bringing the entire Unforgettable series to a conclusion this weekend. And if, you, if you've missed the talks during this summer, it, it, they truly have been life-changing. And if, if you want, you can go on to northridgechurch.com. We give these talks away, and they can become unforgettable truths that impact your life as well. How many of you have ever been to a class reunion? Yeah. All right. For those of you still in school... Or you're wiser than I am and you've never chosen to go to one of these weird events? I just have to tell you, it's amazing how things change. It's amazing. I mean, when you're in high school, as an example, you kind of think that's the real world. It's not the real world. Here's what I found at these reunions. You know those people who were on the upper echelon, you know, the, the popular crowd? You know those people that were voted most likely? You know those people? You know, more often than not, they don't live up to the hype. High school was one thing, real life's another. And then, then there's those least likely people. Now, they never got voted least likely because no one even knew they existed back then, right? And you didn't even know they were there. And they show up at these reunions and you have no clue who these people are, but they're running the world. It's the least likely, not the most likely. If there was ever a least likely in the world, it was a guy named David. You know of David and Goliath fame? This guy was the least likely. In fact, it's a crazy story because in all of Israel... David was the most unlikely to kill Goliath, but he did. And as a result of this unbelievable feat that wasn't even realistic when you look at the circumstances, he became king and ultimately the greatest king Israel ever had. And so what I want to do is I want to give you some context as we move towards this last unforgettable truth, this last unforgettable life lesson. Goliath was a giant, I mean a giant of a man, towered over everyone. And along with being a physical specimen of unique design, he was a well-trained warrior, extremely well-trained. And he was outfitted with the latest and greatest warfare technology of the day. And every day, he would challenge Israel to a one-on-one, mano-a-mano fight that would determine the outcome of the war. Well, not surprisingly, not one of the military leaders, not one of the soldiers of Israel was willing to face him down. There was too much at stake. In fact, not even the king was willing. King Saul refused. The most likely in Israel hid behind their swords and their shields and their armor. So David, who was at the time a young shepherd boy, volunteered the least likely. The least likely, the one with no sword, no shield, no armor whatsoever to hide behind, went out to face this giant Goliath. And he did it with a couple of stones and a slingshot. 
I mean, it's really worth time to read. You can read it in 1 Samuel 17 on your own. In fact, I, I'm really, really excited. Not this coming weekend, but the next weekend, two weekends from now. We're going to start a brand new series called Origins, the Old Testament edition. Some of you were here last fall when we did, for the very first time, Origins. It was on the life of Christ where we went to Israel and brought the context of where the stories unfolded back here and did a series on it. And it made such an impact that we decided to do an Old Testament edition. It begins two weekends from now. You don't want to miss it. You want to invite people. It's going to be an awesome series. And one of the stories in the Origins will be this one. But right now I want you to think about the circumstance. Saul... And the army of Israel were the most likely, David the least likely. Saul and the army had more ability than David. They had more training than David. They had more experience than David. They had better equipment than David. And really, they had greater responsibility than David. It was their job to fight Goliath. David was just a shepherd boy. And Saul and the army of Israel had the same God that David had and the same promises from that God that David had. So you have to ask yourself a question. Why was it that David fought and killed Goliath and not the others? Uh, What made the difference? I can tell you in a simple word. Attitude. Now what's interesting is that the buildup of this talk was okay. You were kind of getting into it. Yeah. What's the difference? And then I said attitude, and you went, gosh. Take me deeper. Give me something bigger. Unfold some new truth in my life. And you know what the problem is? Because we're looking for deeper and bigger and some new truth, we're missing the very thing that God's already given us, the ability to be like David instead of King Saul and all those that failed to fulfill their potential. The difference was attitude. I want to share an unforgettable truth. I began unfolding it last weekend. I'll finish unfolding it this weekend. The unforgettable truth is this. Attitude determines our altitude. Attitude determines how high we're going to rise in life, whether or not we're going to seize our potential or waste our potential, whether we're going to truly live or just exist. Attitude is the difference between our success and failure. It certainly was with David and Saul. In in fact, I found that the key to predicting a person's most probable future is found in two questions. And this is really relevant because all of us should care about predicting probable outcomes because when you decide to marry someone, you should be able to predict a probable outcome. When you hire someone, you should be able to predict a probable outcome. And there are two questions involved in making these predictions. The first is, can they? Can they is an an ability question. It's an aptitude question. It's a competence question. Can they? Do they have the skill set? Do they have the, the giftings? Do they have the talent? Can they? But the second question is far more important than the first. The second question is, will they? Because the truth is, almost everybody can, and yet very few do. The answer to can they is, yeah, they probably can. They could be a good spouse. They could be a good parent. They could be a good friend. They could, they could be a world-changing agent in this crazy world and journey of ours. But they aren't. Because the second question is the real issue. 
will they? Will they is an attitude question. It's a character question. It's a question of commitment. Can they? Will they? Well, the story of David and Goliath proves that attitude is ultimately far more important than ability. Because think about it. Saul and the army had the right resources. But the right resources without the right attitude creates the potential for only one outcome, failure and defeat. And that's exactly what happened to them. They had all the right resources, but they didn't have the right attitude. And so they failed. It was predictable. And then there was David. (laughs) David had the right attitude. I'll do it. I'll do it. I got a stone and a slingshot. Got it at Kmart. You know, I mean, it's like he had the right attitude. But he had none of the right resources. None. No training, no equipment, no ability, no position. And yet he proves that the right attitude without the right resources creates the potential for success and victory for everything we're looking for. Attitude makes the difference. Now last week we looked at two specific attitudes and I encourage you to look at those. But this weekend I want to unfold three more attitudes that really do help us to rise to the level of everything God created us to experience potentially, but so few of us get to. The first is simply this. Every problem has a hidden possibility. Now, I I didn't create the wording of that. This isn't my intellectual property. I wouldn't have even expressed it that way. But it's true. Every problem has a hidden possibility. Now, this is really relevant because... And I'll prove it to you. How many of you have ever had a problem? (laughs) Okay, for all of those that didn't raise your hand, next weekend we'll be on lying. (laughs) We all have problems. Life is filled with problems. It's filled with problems. It's a relevant issue. Every problem has a hidden possibility. Now I'm going to tell you, I hate this truth. Because you know, when I see a problem, I don't see possibility. You know what I see? A problem. And so do you. But every problem has a hidden possibility. I'm more like King Saul. I'm more like the soldiers of Israel. Goliath's a problem. It's a problem. It's too big of a problem for me. I'm going to avoid it. Avoid it. David said, now there's a possibility. He's nuts, but he did it. David had a bunch of problems. He was a shepherd, not a soldier. He had brothers who were demeaning him, who were soldiers, and they were trying to kick him out of the battlefield. And yet he overcame all of these problems and found his possibility. Here's the reality. We're all going to experience problems in our lives. Some of you are experiencing problems behind, beyond anything I can comprehend. But we're all going to experience them. Whether they make us or break us doesn't depend on the problem. It depends on our attitude. Do we see it only in negative terms or do we see it in positive terms? Do we see it as destructive or do we see it as a possibility? It's an attitude. To which some of you are going, you know, this is all really good, Brad, but I thought this was church and we were supposed to look at the Bible. Right. Look at James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. James chapter 1. Consider it pure Joy. Now, before I get beyond those four words, consider it pure joy. I have a question for you. What is joy? Okay, now here's the interesting thing. I really, in my heart, believe that 
you're a high IQ church. But for the last 10 minutes, I've been talking about attitude, and then I asked a simple question, what is joy? And you couldn't come up with the answer. Really? What is joy? It's an attitude. Okay, now I've told you the answer twice. Let's see if we can get it now. What is joy? It's an attitude. And you know what God's saying? God's saying, don't wait until you feel like it. It's God saying, consider it joy. Consider it pure joy. Consider it unadulterated, pure joy, my brothers. And you know, what I expect to follow when, is when everything's going right. But that's not what he's saying here. He says, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. When you face problems, consider it pure joy. God's speaking to our attitudes. He's saying, and this is why you should do that, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. He's talking about character. It develops your internal attitudes. Perseverance must finish its work so that you can become mature and complete, not lacking anything. And you know what I want in life? I want to grow up. I want to become mature. I want to fill all the empty spots and the dysfunctions in my life and turn them into the right thing. I want to, I want to live a life where I'm not lacking but you know what God says has to happen if I'm going to become that kind of a person? I have to start looking at the problems I'm going to experience in a different way, with a different attitude. I need to see that every problem is a hidden possibility. The problem in our lives is that we keep seeing the problems we experience as all negative, as all destructive, instead of seeing them for what they are a bridge, a means for God to get us where we're supposed to be. And I have to be honest with you, I'm not a lover of problems. I don't wake up every morning and say, God, I can't wait to see the buttload of problems you're going to give me today. I mean, I'm not that kind of person. But on the surface and at the moment, our problems can seem like an anchor, can't they? They, they seem like they're going to hold us back. They're going to put drag on our lives. They're going to keep us from our dreams, from what we're longing for, what we were created for. In fact, when I look at problems, I often think they're anchors that are going to literally drown me and sink me. Don't you see them as that? I'm often struggling to find oxygen in this world because of the problems I'm facing. And here's the reality. Our problems will sink us and destroy us and hold us back if we respond with the wrong attitude. King Saul confronted a problem. His name was Goliath. The army of Israel confronted a problem. His name was Goliath, and, and they allowed it to sink them. But David saw it so differently. David shows us that if we respond with the right attitude, our problems can become assets instead of anchors. They can become the catalyst, the very catalyst, for our ultimate success, for finding life and life to the full. Every problem has a hidden possibility. The reason we don't experience our possibilities in life is because we don't understand that problem is often the doorway in. Now, I have to tell you right up front, I'm not really perfect at this attitude. But I've had a lot of exposure to some people who really did embrace it, and it was life-changing for them. And because of that, I try and weave it into the fabric of my life. A great example of this is my dad. My dad died in the year 2000 of pancreatic cancer, but, but my dad experienced a life filled with problems. 
My dad was born into what I would call a problem family. Now, I understand that's kind of a weird way to say it because most of us would say, I was born into a family with what? Problems. But there's a difference between a family with problems and a problem family. And know this, every, prob- every family is with problems, but every family is not a problem family. My dad had a problem family. I mean, you see, neither of his parents were capable of really parenting. I mean, his dad was an unbelievable alcoholic who, if he was working, would only spend everything he made on his own addictions and just absolutely didn't provide for his family. Wanted to build a house for his family, so he dug a hole in the ground, put plywood over it, and never went any further, so he had to dig trenches around the inside so when it would rain, they'd have time to bail out their home and this is the piece of junk they lived in because this man was consumed with his own issues the mom didn't have the ability to sustain this family emotionally or economically on her own and and everything was collapsing around them and so my dad and his sister the two oldest started parenting from a very very young age the kids and the parents I only remember his parents as being his dependents, never as being anyone who did anything for him. When he was seven years old, he also confronted a problem with health. He contracted tuberculosis. If you know anything about tuberculosis, it's so infectious and so dangerous that they would put people with tuberculosis away from the population. They would lock them in homes and let them recover or not. And he was, as a seven-year-old kid, locked away for over a year. And he had parents that didn't care, or at least couldn't help. And he was alone. After his time in the home, they still had to treat him. And back then, it was the treatment. They thought if they would let the lung rest, tuberculosis could heal better, so they would collapse the lung. And so once a month, this little eight-year-old kid had to, without parental help, hop on a bus, go himself to a doctor where they would stick a long needle into his lung, collapse it. He'd get back on the bus and go home and play the role of a parent as an eight- and nine-year-old kid. Obviously, education was lost on him, and his parents didn't care about it. They had no sustaining encouragement in his life, and so he kind of did the best he could. Seventeen years old, he got polio. Polio just robs you of your muscle mass, and he lost use of his legs. He was told he'd never walk again. He learned to walk, but using his abdomen muscles, and ultimately crutches helped, and in the end of his life, he had to sit in a chair. But this young man, with problem after problem after problem, with parents who didn't care and certainly didn't encourage education, decided he was going to make some of his life, and he put himself through high school, he put himself through college, he put himself through grad school, and he put himself through law school, started a law firm, became an extremely successful man. All at the same time, he became a phenomenal father and a phenomenal husband. How did he do it? He's no longer with us, but if you were to ask him how did he do it, he would say there's only one thing that helped me rise above the circumstances of the, of the life I was given, and it was the problems I endured. If I had not experienced those problems, I would have existed in life like the rest of my family, but these problems became doorways of unbelievable possibility to me. The only reason I amounted to anything was because with every problem came a possibility. 
I, I don't know where you're at in life, but I do know your life is or is going to be filled with problems. It's true of all of us. But I do know this, regardless of your problems, you can seize life and live it to the full if you'll have the right attitude. Every problem comes with hidden possibilities. Consider it joy. There's another attitude that really does determine our altitude, can help us raise the level of our life. And it's another angle on that. And it's simply this. Limitations are guidelines, not stop signs. Once again, it's not my wording. I'm just giving it to you as I was taught it. Limitations are guidelines, not stop signs. Now, this isn't how we look at it. We, we tend to look at limitations as stop signs. Oh, I can't do that. I can't do that. And quite frankly, most of us are angry at God, angry at life, angry at the world for the limitations we've been given. I mean, think about it. We look around and we go, how come I wasn't given a better family like those people were? How come I wasn't given better opportunities like those people were? How come I didn't get to go to the best schools like those people do? How come we never had anything and other people have stuff? How come, how come, how come? And we look at our limitations and it stops us from becoming. We use excuses to take an exit off the highway of life all because we have the wrong attitude just like Saul and the army of God. Unlike David. Limitations are guidelines, not stop signs. Think about it with David and Goliath. In 1 Samuel 17, verse 38, you can start reading about how there was this unique circumstance where, where David volunteered to fight Goliath. And, and it's interesting, it should warm your heart towards King Saul. It should make you really appreciate him a lot because though he wasn't willing to really live up to being a king and though he wasn't willing to lead in any positive way and though he was willing to let a little shepherd boy take his place. He was gracious enough to offer his armor and his shield and his sword. Doesn't that warm your heart toward this guy? Wasn't he awesome? The only problem, of course, was the armor didn't fit and David couldn't hold up the shield or the sword, so really wasn't a good moment. He couldn't wear those things. And even if he could, he had no training as to how to fight in them. He was a shepherd boy. What a big limitation. Goliath, all the best technology, and David couldn't even put on armor, couldn't hold a shield, and couldn't hold a sword. Pretty big limitation, but you know what? The limitation didn't mean he wasn't supposed to fight Goliath. I don't know about you, but every once in a while, I'm stupid enough to volunteer for something and then regret volunteering. Have you ever been there? And I mean, I can see David going, I'll fight him! And then, you know, if he's like me, he'd lay in bed at night and he'd get beads of sweat and he'd just get hung. What the crap was I thinking? <laughs> and so what I do is then I look for second opportunities for it not to work out. And this was his perfect opportunity. I'll fight him. I'll fight him. <laughs> oh, I, I would fight him, but I don't have any armor. I'd fight him. I don't have a I'd fight him, but I don't. I can't fight Goliath without this stuff. Bummer. I have to find someone else. That, that would be how I'd respond. But he didn't see the limitation as a stop sign. He saw it as a guideline. You know what David realized? Because his attitude was right. David realized that God didn't want him to fight Goliath like everyone else fought Goliath. Because see, everyone else who fought Goliath fought him with armor, a shield, and a sword. And do you know what happened to everyone else that fought Goliath? They were dead. God said, it's not the best way to fight this guy. And so he limited David 
He took away those opportunities from David so that David would fulfill his call in a different way. You see, Goliath was good at everything except moving fast. So when the stone came at his forehead, he was like, done. David won. God didn't want David to fight Goliath like other people. God wanted David to fight Goliath as only David could. You know why we see limitations as negative? Because we're comparing ourselves to each other. We're trying to be like everyone else. If I could have an education like that person, I could be like that person. If I could have had a family like that person, I could be like that person. If I could do this and that. And it's a life of comparison. But God doesn't want you to live someone else's life. God wants you to live your life. He wants you to be like David. Limitations aren't stop signs. Limitations are guidelines. We find the same thing with Paul the Apostle. His goal was to share the truth of Jesus to the whole world. In fact, he was called of God to take the truth, the good news, the gospel it's called, of Jesus to the whole world. But he was thrown in prison. Now, I don't know if you understand this, but prison was a little bit of a limitation You know, this was before radio, this was before TV, this was before the internet, this was before, you know, smartphones. And so if you're in prison and you're chained to guards, you're not going to be sharing Jesus with many people. And if I was Paul, I would have said, all right, God, if you're going to fail me like this, then I'm stopping right where I'm at. But not, not Paul, because Paul said, okay, well, I can't go share the gospel with everyone, but you know, I... I can write. So he wrote some letters to a couple of people in community in different little city churches that had just started. And, and, and you know, it's really weird because those little letters became a big portion of the New Testament of the Bible, which is the best-selling book by far in all of history, which billions of people have read and billions of people have had their lives transformed by. And the only reason we have it is because Paul found himself with the limitations of prison and the only way he could speak the name of Jesus was by writing it and the whole world has been transformed by it because he saw limitations not as stop signs but guidelines. And not only that, he really wanted to speak Jesus to the whole world but he didn't have the whole world to speak to but he did have these guards he was chained to in prison. And so he, you know, they were stuck there just like he was. So he talked about Jesus when they said shut up what were they going to do? Put him in prison? And so he just kept speaking the name of Jesus. And so the name of Jesus got known. And you know, these people he was chained to were palace guards. They had access to a place that few people had access to. Caesar's palace. The throne rooms of power in the world. And look what Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, being thrown in prison, being limited in such a big way, has served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace garden to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. They know about Jesus now. And because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. Two things have happened. By me speaking to the guards, the name of Jesus has gone where it couldn't have gone otherwise. And by me speaking of Jesus in prison, other people are saying, if Paul can do it in prison, I can do it in freedom. And what happened? 
The limitation became a guideline instead of a stop sign in the name of Jesus transformed the world. Do you realize the Roman Empire fell to Jesus? And it happened because this guy, like David, saw limitations as guidelines, not stop signs. How about you? We see limitations as the worst thing that could ever happen to us. I have all kinds of limitations, all kinds of weaknesses, and so do you. But it's just how God guides us to be the people he wants us to be. We need to see it that way. You want to see it in the real world? There's a lady named Johnny Erickson Tata. Johnny Erickson Tata was just like you and I. She was born a normal person in this world. She'd ride horses, be with her family. Average teenager having to go to school and try and grow into her abilities. And then something happened. She dove into a shallow body of water and she became a quadriplegic with no functional use of her arm or her legs. Couldn't even take care of herself really. Went through a season of darkness but then by choice changed her attitude and realized, okay, I have unbelievable limitations but they're not stop signs, they're guidelines. God can still use me. God made me creative, an artist and I can't use my hands but maybe I could use my mouth. And she became an unbelievably expressive artist with nothing but her mouth to hold the brush. You're gonna see pictures that she did, but she didn't stop there. She started speaking about Jesus to the world and her story started transforming people so much so that she was given worldwide platforms. Even Billy Graham had her on his platform and there aren't many people in the world who haven't heard of Johnny Erickson Tata. They would have never heard of her if she was just a little girl that wasted her life riding horses, but they heard of her because she was a woman with almost no functional physical ability who still spoke truth in such positive tones. She became an author, best-selling author. She became a radio host, still is. She has transformed thousands of people's lives because she saw limitations as a guideline, not as an excuse, not as a stop sign. Let me ask you, how do you see your limitations? Not many of us will ever be functionally rendered paralyzed like she was, but you know, many of us are functionally paralyzed emotionally. Many of us are functionally paralyzed because of family background, because of disappointments, but, but those are limitations that should guide us, not stop us, but it takes the right attitude. Do you have it? If we're going to be like Johnny or like Paul or like David, if we're going to have the right attitude about our limitations, then there are two things that we need. The first is this. We need to look to and depend on Christ. We really do. You, you want the unique thing about David and Paul and Johnny? Even my dad. All of them. Do you know what they did? They, they knew that their limitations rendered them inoperative, so they looked to God. They depended on him. And in so doing they found that they could become everything God intended for them. Look at Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. This is from the pen of Paul. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. I can do everything through him, even though I'm so limited. We're limited, but Christ isn't. If he wants to use us to do something, he can do it when we're not trained, and if all we have is a stone, like he did David. If he wants to use us to do something, then he can do it when we're in prison, locked away from the world, in bondage, like he did with Paul. If he wants to use us to do something, he can do it 
even if we can't functionally find use of our arms or legs like Johnny. Do you know, you know what Jesus has done? And I think this is one of the reasons many of us avoid the whole Jesus thing. Jesus has rendered every one of our excuses invalid. I, I know you have limitations. I know you do. But it's an invalid reason for not becoming all that God created you to become. Because you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. You just make, need to make a choice. I will not be like King Saul. I am going to be like King David. I'm going to be like Paul. I'm going to be like Johnny. I am going to change my attitude. And we look to and depend on Jesus to do it. Limitations are guidelines, not stop signs. Finally, there's this one last attitude that can raise the level of our life, that can determine how high we fly or don't. It, it's an attitude that's really important to me because it kind of uh, defines a contrary look at the world than I normally have. In fact, if you've ever received a letter from me, a handwritten letter, you've, you've seen this attitude expressed in three words. Just before I sign my name, I don't do sincerely or love in Christ or do anything like that. I sign expecting God's best. Expecting God's best. Expecting God's best. And that's the attitude, expect the best. Now the reason I sign it to my letters is because I need to remind myself at every opportunity I can that I need to expect the best. You, you think I'm writing it to you, but I'm not writing it to you. I'm writing it for me, expecting God's best. Because here's the thing, in life I wake up expecting the worst. Because I know you people. No, I'm being very serious, really. I mean, do you know Murphy? If it can go wrong, it will. Isn't that how most of us think? I can tell you how often people say, oh my gosh, if it can go wrong, it will. That's expecting the worst. And that's what I do by nature. And it shuts me down and it paralyzes me. If I'm going to truly live like David did, then I have to start expecting God's best. I have to start expecting the best. That's what David did. It's a funny scene in 1 Samuel 17, starting with verse 33. Um, Saul is looking at David after he volunteered to kill Goliath, and he goes, why do you think you can kill Goliath? And by the way, that's a great question. I've had a lot of people look at me and say, why do you think you can do that? And you know what David said? David said, well, well, I killed a lion, and I killed a bear when they were coming in to kill my sheep. And Goliath's no different than a lion or a bear. But he was saying, you know, I had no ability to kill a lion. I had no ability to kill a bear. I have no ability to kill Goliath. But then he said these words. God delivered me from the lion and the bear. He'll do the same for me with this one who has defied the name of God. You know what he's saying? I don't think I can kill a lion, a bear, or Goliath. But here's the good news. God can you know what Saul's problem was? He saw Goliath, but he didn't see God. Next to God, Goliath was nothing. I don't know what your Goliath is. I don't know what your problems are. I don't know what your circumstances are. I don't know what's going wrong, and you might be experiencing life's worst, but I know this. No matter what your circumstances, you can expect God's best. That Goliath is nothing compared to God. 
Paul chose to expect God's best even when he was experiencing life's worst. He acknowledged life's worst. He acknowledged all the junk that was going on, but he still expected God's best. Look at Romans 8, 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. As he sits and rots in prison, which he acknowledges is not a good thing, he says, you can know that God works good through everything we experience when we love him. What was he doing? He was expecting God's best. Let me ask you a question. What have you been expecting? I'm going to tell you, whatever you've been expecting, that's what you've actually been experiencing in life. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 9, he says, hey, don't grow weary in well-doing. He's acknowledging the truth. It gets tiresome to keep doing right in a world where most people always do wrong. It gets tiring to do right in a world where doing right often goes wrong for you. He says, don't get weary in well-doing because in due season, if you stay faithful, you're going to reap a harvest. You know what he's saying? You can expect God's best. There's only one thing that can keep us in the game long enough to experience the outcomes that we're looking for in life, and that's expecting the best. Do you, do you know what you have when you expect the best? Hope. When you expect the best, you have hope. King Saul had no hope that he could take down Goliath, but David had all the hope in the world he could take down the Goliath because he was expecting God's best. Hope is essential to living life at the highest level, to live at our fullest potential. We have to expect God's best. Now let me ask you a question. How are you living? I mean, how are you living these days? Okay, under the circumstances? Or above the circumstances? How are you living? The answer's simple, really. It all depends on your attitude. Because the truth is, attitude really does determine your altitude. Now, I, I want to give you, as we conclude this unforgettable series, I want to give you an application. Here at Northridge, we really, really believe that the truth is great and important, but until we apply it to our life, it doesn't make much of an impact. And so I want to give you an application of this. Attitude determines your altitude. Attitude will determine how high you ultimately rise towards your potential in life or how small you ultimately live your life. Attitude will do it. So here's the application. We need to make sure we have the right attitude. Right? And you know what I know about us? I bet you very few of us listening to this talk right now, this last week, at any point, evaluated our attitude. Oh man, we evaluated other people. But we didn't evaluate our attitude. We evaluate our circumstance and we said, oh man, I can't believe I'm speaking these problems. What's wrong with you, God? I can't believe I have these limitations. How come you're unfair to me, God? I can't believe all this stuff. I can't believe the circumstances. I can't believe all this is going on. But very few of us got up and said, how's my attitude today? And that's going to determine your altitude. Do you realize that for David it was an illogical thing for him to think that he could take down Goliath? But his attitude 
helped him to see it differently. For my dad, it was an illogical thing to think that life could turn out well in a world that had robbed him of so much, and yet his attitude drove him to make different choices. The same thing with Johnny, the same thing with Paul, and now it's our turn. We need to make sure we have the right attitude because if we don't, we will never live life like it's meant to be lived. So when you're looking at your attitude, what do you have to see? And know this, your attitude needs continual adjustment. If you're going to have the right attitude, you need to think about, you need to take care of what's in your head. Because what's in your head is very influential on your attitude. Look at Philippians chapter 4, 8. This is God's word. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is going to be excellent in your life, if anything is going to be praiseworthy, let's use our summer series for this. If anything in your life is going to be unforgettable, unforgettable like David, unforgettable like Paul, unforgettable like my dad to me, unforgettable like Johnny is to the world, if anything is going to be unforgettable, think about such things. What does God say? If you're ever going to live a life that's unforgettable, then you have to be concerned about what's in your head. And most of us don't pay attention. In Romans chapter 12 too, God says, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of what? Your mind. The right attitude flows from what's in your head. Can I ask you a question? What's in your head these days? Because what's in your head is determining your attitude. Your attitude is determining your altitude. There's another thing. If we're going to have the right attitude, we need to take care of who is in our life. Who's in our life? Because who's in our life has great influence over our attitude in life. Look at 1 Corinthians 15.33. Don't be misled. Don't be ignorant. Don't be deceived. Don't live by the wrong myth. Bad company corrupts good character. What's character? That's our attitude. That's what's going on inside. Bad company corrupts good character. Your attitude is very much influenced by who's in your life. Can I ask you a question? Who's in your life these days? Do you know toxic people are toxic to what's going on inside of us? And all of us by choice need to get the right people in our lives who can encourage us and who can lift us up. And I don't care where you're at in life, what kind of community you're in, what kind of family you're in, you can make choices. And that's one of the things church is for. You can make choices to get the right people in your life who will lift you up. Look what he says in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. He says, look it, we need to take care. We need to consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let's not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let's get together and encourage one another. We'll need it more and more as the day approaches. He's saying, who's in your life matters. Who's in your life? It affects your attitude. So if I'm going to have the right attitude, I need to care about what's in my head. If I'm going to have the right attitude, I have to care about who's in my life. And there's one last thing. If I'm going to really have the right attitude, then I need to be very, very aware of and concerned about what's in my heart. Do you know when David was described by God for the world to know this is how God described him. He was a man after my own. He was a man after my own heart. You know what Saul's problem? He had the wrong heart. You know why David was different? He had the right heart. What's in your heart? 
And this is a foundational issue because the truth is all of us have bad hearts by nature. All of us. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We've all fallen short. We've all been King Saul. We've been all the soldiers. We've all had the wrong attitude. We've all embraced it. Look what Hebrews chapter 3 verse 12 says. It says very clearly, see to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart. Why? Because that'll cause you to turn away from the living God. Do you, do you know why Saul failed? Because of what was in his heart. Do you know why the army failed? Because of what was in their heart. Do you know why David succeeded? Because of what was in his heart. What was the difference? David had God in his heart. Saul didn't. Paul had Jesus in his heart. Others didn't. Changed my dad. Changed Johnny. It can change you. What's in your heart? There's only one thing that can make your heart what it needs to be so you can embrace every problem as a hidden possibility, every limitation as a guideline and not stop sign, and so you can expect God's best in even life's worst circumstances. There's only one thing that can change your heart to be like that, and that's Jesus. You see, the wages of our sin is death, destroyed hearts, but Jesus came down and died on the cross in our place, was buried and rose again so that he could give us brand new hearts, but you have to trust him. Look at Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. It says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it's with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it's with your mouth that you confess and are saved. It's a choice of a whole different attitude. Trusting Jesus instead of trusting yourself. Looking to Jesus instead of looking to yourself. For those of you who have already followed Jesus and you say, I've already asked him to change my heart. I've already put my faith in him. I've already been redeemed. Awesome. But you know why you can still have a bad attitude? Because you let the wrong stuff in your head and you let the wrong people into your life. And you need to fix it. But some of us here have never let Jesus give us the right heart. This is your moment to confess him as Lord, to believe in your heart that he's been raised from the dead, to let him save you. Just before we end this series, I'm going to ask you, if you would, to honor the moment and bow with me in a word of prayer. And if you're here and you've never yet experienced him giving you that new heart, I'm going to invite you to take the words of my prayer and make them your words to God. Just in your heart, just say, God, I I have a messed up heart. Sinful, unbelieving, I've turned away from you. But I need you. And so right now I'm confessing my sin and confessing Jesus as Lord. And I'm believing Jesus in your death, burial, and resurrection to forgive me and to save me. In Jesus' name, amen. Just before I finish the talk, if you prayed with me, please let us know. We make it really easy. If you're in one of our live services, we give you this program, and on the inside is this connection card. And all you have to do is tear it out on the bottom of a circle that you check that says, today I prayed to receive Jesus. And if you did, you might be at Northridge Celine, you might be at Northridge Brighton, you might be here at Plymouth. Check that off, fill it out, and then there are boxes right outside the gathering area. Just put it in there, and we're going to send you stuff to help you take your next steps with God. And if you're watching online, just hit the what next button and we'll do the same thing for you. Here's the deal. Attitude determines your altitude and the attitude you have right now is the one you've chosen. It's my prayer that this week, each week for the rest of your life, 
you'll make the choice to have the right thing in your head, the right thing in your heart, and the right people in your life so that instead of living underneath the circumstances of problems and limitations and junk, you can soar to your potential because attitude determines your altitude. So glad you came. See you next time.